HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Mikey Juni. We'll talk to Mikey about Scar of the Sea and a lot more. We'll taste a shard and a co-ferment Mikey made for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. The pride of Rancho Cucamonga... Mikey Juni attended Cal Poly and stumbled on wine after just trying to get a buzz. Intrigued by the juice, Mikey started working in tasting rooms, farming, wineries, and traveled abroad before he came back to the U.S. to settle into wine and cider. Mikey started Scar of the Sea around 2012. He partners with growers all around California who care about farming for the future. He makes low-intervention wines along with his wife and life partner, Gina, who also makes her own wine under the label Lady of the Sunshine. The wines are very personal, unique, delicate, nuanced, and focused on proper acid. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Mikey. Thanks, Sam. Wow, that was a cool intro. (laughs) That was a good one, right? Um, We're talking to Mikey remotely. I would have loved to have sit face-to-face with Mikey, but he doesn't get to New York that much. Uh, Where are you right now, Mikey? I'm in Cayucas, California. I'm at my house, um, just uh, a town just north of Morro Bay. Okay. Um, And that is a quick ride over to... uh, It's a... It's about everything 30, you're doing there. Yeah, it's about 30 minutes to our winery and about 40 minute drive to the vineyard we farm. Kind of everything right. we we do around here is within about an hour. Central okay. Coast 
pretty spread out. So, you know, it, well, there is a little bit of driving here, um, right. which is part uh, of the beauty of it. It's, uh, it's not too crowded. Um, so when you said to farm my vineyard, I want to get into that a little later because that's an important part of what I want to talk about. But in knowing you, you know, not meeting, but, you know, drinking your wines and following you on social media and, you know, talking to other people, um, I stumbled across the fact that you have a very interesting past, um, is much or more colorful you know, than more of my guests. So I ask all my guests to give me a little background on their journey in life and wine that pretty much got you to current, you know, which is your own winery, Scar of the Sea. Um, and I think in setting that up, I think Gina and I think your family and her family, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. So don't kill the whole show with a history lesson, but, you know, give me some of the fun things, you know, in your background. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Ranch Cucamonga, which is, um, it's like a strip mall town in, uh, in, in Los Angeles or East Southeast of Los Angeles. I, I was never all that excited about where I grew up. It was, um, <laughs> kind of far from the ocean and is pretty hot and it was a little overdeveloped in my opinion, kind of straddled by freeways and strip malls. Sounds and, like think, crap. Yeah. You know, but, uh, it's funny because I've come full circle and now it's one of my most special places that we make wine from. Um, Cucamonga actually has a really long and beautiful wine history. It was one of the first um, planted regions in California. At one time it was one of the largest wine growing regions in California. And to this day, it still has a handful of very old dry farmed vineyards dating back to the early 1900s that we're really lucky to work with. But yeah, so that's a full circle. That's crazy. Go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, no. So I grew up there. Um, and, uh, you know, just through, um, through going to, through going to the process of going to college, I decided to go to San Luis Obispo and come to Cal Poly. I studied, um, engineering at Cal Poly. Uh, it was pretty quick. I realized I didn't want to be an engineer. Um, it was, uh, you know, a lot of labs and classes that weren't very inspiring to me. And I, joined a, a group at Cal Poly called Vines to Wines. And it was probably the most pivotal piece in getting me into the wine industry. And, and I think, you know, I joined because there's a lot cuter girls and it was a, a lot of, <laughs> lot more fun. You could drink wine and beer and barbecue. And it was just this whole like, wow, this is way more fun than engineering. And, um, I got a job after college with the Air Force as a civil servant doing engineering work. And I just had a, you know, 22 year old. Isn't there like a big base around there or something? Yeah. Vandenberg Air Force. Right. That's super famous. It's a stunning place. It's on the coast of Lompoc. So it's just Mm. west of a lot of those wines that are made down in the Santa Rita Hills. But so I worked there and quickly realized that I was stuck in a cubicle and I had like an early 20s life crisis and uh, decided to quit that job. And I knew that I liked wine. Um, as you kind of mentioned in your your bio or your intro, you know, I found wine just by going wine tasting and playing bocce ball and hanging out and drinking wine. And then it kind of became a, a little bit of a rabbit hole. Um, and so I got a job in a tasting room and, and from there I went on a kind of a 
it's called Mustang Jobs. It's a job website. And I found a vineyard to farm up in Santa Margarita, which is just north of San Luis Obispo. And I totally bullshitted my way into that job. And, um, and then the gentleman who was the guy just growing grapes to sell or he was making wine. You know, he, I was really lucky because he just bought the property um, and he was from Arizona and he was ah. not going to be able to live there yet. And so Startup. he needed yeah. he needed to find someone to farm this five acre vineyard while he was living in Arizona. And he was on a budget and didn't want to hire, you know, a big company. So he posted it for the college kids. And I saw that and, you know, um, kind of took a cliff notes from one of my buddies on how to farm a vineyard and went up there and just kind of was able to talk my way into that job. And, uh, I farmed that vineyard for four years and lived in a barn on the, on the, on the site. And we kind of did a trade agreement where I would live for free and I'd farm his vineyard. And it was, um, it's kind of where I learned how to farm. And, and also because I didn't pay rent, I was able to save money to start scar the sea and yeah that, that's kind of my what intro. year was that how long was that and what years was that that was i started that in 2010 okay and i did that for like i said four vintages so i think i lived there until 2013 or 14 wow. um that was kind of my like uh <laughs> when i started scar the sea it was just on such a budget and i was so young i just I, I basically w- was like a vagabond. I just would live in barns and sheds and not pay rent. And that was my way of keeping all the money I could and being able right. to live pretty much on very, very low income and start this business. Cause it, you know, it wasn't started with an inheritance or anything like that. It was right. went to Tasmania and made 20,000 bucks and came back. And- did you, when you said Tasmania, did you do that traveling within that window or after? That you were uh, the, the farming. I was. I did that while I was farming. So I. Okay. I, I went to Tasmania in the off season. Obviously, off season. I needed. I needed to be in California during harvest. Um. So my northern hemisphere harvest, I always wanted to be in California. Um. So that kind of takes some of the the fun, the most fun places away to go to France right. or Spain, these different spots. But I knew that I, if I wanted to really learn wines of this region, I needed to be making wine here and learning how to farm and then i could go to the southern hemisphere to try to pick up extra experience um and that's how i ended in tasmania i really wanted i was really interested in sparkling wine and from my did you go to tasmania because of sparkling wine or when you got there you realized how important and it influenced you as far as oh no i went i went there because of sparkling wine and then i i mean i got lucky and i knew that they made good sparkling wine but some of their best sparkling wines are not possible to find in the united states and um and when I got there, I realized that they actually make very, very great sparkling wines. Um, is that, wait, Mikey, is that because they don't make that much? And even if they make a bunch, you know, they're drinking all of it there. So yeah. much of it doesn't get here. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think um, the best producers just don't make enough and it gets drinking in Australia or in closer countries that export. Um but yeah, I, I've only had the best wines when they've been brought back to me. I've never really found any of my favorite 
Tazzy Wines retail. Here. There's like the yeah, there's like the Jants and like the random kind of bigger ones, but those aren't what I'm talking about. Right. That's a little sad. Um, did you when you were in Tasmania, so obviously a big influence on where your head's at with sparkling wines, did you go there also trying to figure cider out or that you stumbled on? That I definitely stumbled on. Okay. I um, I was there trying to learn about sparkling wine and also I just wanted to work in a place that was on the ocean and um and in a beautiful spot because who doesn't want to travel to a, a nice place? And, you know, and so I went to Tassie and, and then the, one of our neighbors where I was working, he was making cider and it was the first time I drank cider that was produced by a winemaker and kind of had this just aha moment of, Oh wow. Like it's very logical now, but cider is just apple wine. And so instead right. of grape juice, it's made with apple juice. And, and I had never, I, you know, I drank ciders growing up and in college, but I never thought of it like, in that way. And I don't think I ever drank ciders that were produced in that way. Yeah. You weren't drinking that stuff. Yeah. That's and, for sure. And so then that just opened a. Wait, a, isn't like, and I'm older than you, but isn't like the apple cider we drank, there are two kinds. There was the non-alcoholic, which was like a deep brown, right? Yeah. <laughs> Ciders. And then there was the vintage cider, you know, which was a little more golden. Yeah, but I don't, the golden I, I, stuff, you, you're talking about, you know, made like wine. You, you didn't drink anything of the likes of what you tasted there. You're no, saying, I mean, right? before Tasmania, the only cider I probably had was like Angry Orchard at a bar. Right. And it was not the ciders that inspired no. me whatsoever. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of where I found cider and that's where I learned a lot about the fundamentals and basics of sparkling wine. And, and that's also where, you know, when I was there in 2011, the Australian dollar was so much, it was up on the American dollar and then they paid so much more in, in Australia and I was able to live for free and I got a car for free and they paid me you know, way, way more. And so I came back and at the time I was probably 23 and I had 25,000 bucks in my bank account. And I thought that was just a huge amount of money. And, um, <laughs> and that's when I, you know, I kind of just was lucky in the fact that I was young and naive and confident. And I decided that, well, I'm going to make my own wines. Um, and you know, I did not have enough experience at that point to do that. Um, but that just so what, started. What do you do? You take a job somewhere? Yeah. I mean, I, I continued to work for other people for um, up until about 2016. Okay. Um, and so I was, this was a side hustle. You know, I would work for other winemakers as a seller rat or whatever. And then I would go hustle down to where my wines were and take care of my wines on the side. And then it was just kind of always this like double, double time job. Um, so when when do you when do you make the break? You know, when do you disassociate yourself from other things and dedicate entirely to Yeah, um, I think it was 2015 and I had a realized I realized that if I ever wanted to make this thing li like really go, it couldn't be a side job. It had to be the main job. Right. And I also realized that I had zero liabilities. I was in my low to mid 20s. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a girlfriend. 
And so you I, could jump right in. Exactly. Nothing without mattered. losing anything. Exactly. No risk involved, in my opinion. Kind because of good, it, it was kind it of was, fortuitous and a good setup, good timing. Exactly. And so it was just I had nothing to lose. And even if I lost all the money that I put into it, I just I've never been that attached to money. It's something that we make and use to get to have experiences and live our life. And so it was just it just was fortuitous in that time era of my life to be able to be doing this kind of hard grinding part of my right so stop there for a second i just want to go backwards a little and fill in some blanks your family grandparents um they came from the napa valley right i mean if anybody loves napa wines and they've traveled up and down 29 to tasting rooms and wineries they've stopped in the oakville grocery what was the connection there yeah no my family um through my dad's side, I think has been in the Napa Valley in St. Helena for five generations. Wow. And so they were some of the first um, Swiss Italian immigrants to come into the Napa Valley. My, They helped build the what now is the CIA building, but used to be the Christian Brothers Winery. Right. And a lot of the old stone bridges all through the valley. And then um, my great-grandfather... Uh, and his brothers um, were all kind of different grocers in the valley. So my great grandfather was in charge and the grocer at the Oakville Grocery. He was the postmaster and <laughs> lived in the house next to the Oakville Grocery, which is now like a tasting room. But th- we used to own right. all the Oakville Grocery. There was not much there. Yeah, and I mean yeah. now it's in front of Opus One, and you know there was right. nothing. That, there was nothing right. there. There was fig trees and and. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's where my grandpa grew up there. And, and, uh, but you as a little kid, I'm, I assume, were in and out of there. So you oh, had yeah. a pretty I good, mean, we, I mean, you were breathing that air and walking that earth type for thing. For sure. Right? And wine was always on our table. Um, we were never in the winemaking like, business. No, no one in my family. My grandpa was, a, a, was the principal in education. But was it a European, like Italian thing? You have wine at the meals? Yeah, for sure. We yeah. definitely have. There was, like I said, just always wine, and and it was always cool old Napa wine. Um, we'd always be drinking old Heights Cellars, yeah. And Joseph we'll Phelps have to be wines. That now, yeah. And all right, and so go ahead. No, uh, you keep leading. I guess uh, I didn't grow up in San Elena or Napa Valley. My dad. No, I know you said region. Rancho Cucamonga, but you had that connection in your life and the family had some pretty deep connections yeah and and even still in st helena there's a a deli there called the juni deli um and i was i meant to ask you offline is is that the family that is the family but that's not they sold the business so someone else now runs the juni deli but it was theirs at some point i mean yeah they started it was my uncle henry's and he started it and the juni still own the building um just not the market did the guy who took it over kind of carry on what they were doing or he just came Oh, in no, and- it's like, yeah. I mean, if you go in there, it hasn't changed since the 70s. Oh, that's cool. Like the most, I, I like uh, to hear that. Um, before we jump ahead, I want to talk about, you know, Gina, because, you know, of course, she's a hugely important part of your life in every way. When did you meet her? What year? I mean, we got to about 2016. When did the two of you? Gina and I met in 2014. And one of my first jobs was at a winery down here called Shamisol. It's in the Edna Valley. Right. And I w- remained really good friends with the, the manager of the tasting room, Andrea. And she hired Gina in 2014 to work in the tasting room. And 
I think right when she hired her, she called me and said, Hey, Mikey, I just hired the cutest girl. You should come and come to the That's a good and, friend, man. Yeah, it's a very, very good friend. <laughs> yeah. And still and still one of my best friends. And um nice. Andrea, uh yeah, kind of set us up and and then we dated that summer and and I think like you said in the timeline, um you that was when I was just really full on scar of the sea. And so our timing was a little off. Um, I was 26 and Gina was 22. She had just graduated college and she was wanting to go travel the world and make wine. So, um, she went from, we dated so you that, met separated we, we and dated obviously that came back. summer. Yeah. We dated that summer and then we split up and Gina spent the next three years traveling the world, making wines. And some amazing and never places. hooked up with someone else, either one of you, right? She was with, uh, she had a boyfriend that whole time, and oh, I, Mikey, I was how'd like, you let oh, that man, happen? Man, it was really hard to, to watch. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and um, we'll talk more about Gina towards the end because you cool. know she's doing her own wine thing too, and integral in what you do. But her family is very interesting. You know what's going on in the world now with farming and farming being really, you know what makes good wine and the practices just talk about, you, you know, what she grew up around. Yeah. I mean, farming, making good wine, isn't a new thing. That's been the practice. That's been the way since the beginning of time. Um, but people are realizing that again, I guess. Um, that's what I meant. Yeah. Gina's family has an amazing story and, um, her mom and dad, uh, were living in Huntington beach in a wine tasting group and found, biodynamic wines and natural wines early on um and were really inspired by Kermit Lynch and a, a lot of that stuff and they um had uh decided to quit their jobs and they traveled the west coast and found Placerville which is um kind of just east of Sacramento on your way to Tahoe it's like 2600 feet elevation it's on the snow line it's very continental in climate really really Inspiring. Is that anything to do with the Sierras, the Sierra yeah, foothills? Yeah, it's, it's in the Sierras. And so it's okay. it's in, on really granitic, red, Josephine um, soils, um, and there's lots of rain. You know, they get 50 inches of rain a year, and it's it snows in the winter. It, it's way more European um, in climate for ah. me. And uh, Frank planted um, mostly roans and, and a, a few other things up there and has been farming biodynamic since um, 2005. He's been certified since 2008. And so he was a, a little ahead of his time and, and is an amazing farmer. And, uh, and it's a cool story, right? Yeah. Even for you to kind of stumble on. Oh, and then that's where Gina grew up. And, you know, so Gina is a second generation biodynamic farmer, winemaker, kind of pursuing her own ways down here, but still very, very inspired and um, coached by her father. Do you know uh, John Raytech from, I think it's Cheritas? Ceritas. Um, Ceritas, I, I'm sorry. I don't know John. I've had many Similar of John's story. Wines. His wife's family, you know, farmed and, you know, they farmed with very deep practices and all of that. It was just interesting. It's nice to come across people who are doing this, not because... You should do it. They did it because that's how you should do it, and they continue to do it. So, exactly I mean, that that's I mean, a very cool thing. Frank doesn't. They don't sell their wines wholesale. You know, it's all mom and pop winery, and they were doing this before anyone in their region. They were kind of laughed at, and now everyone is like 
kind of seeing the light. So it's just way ahead of the yeah, time. And kind it's, of OGs like said, too. Yeah, right? it's, they, they didn't do it because it, it was helping them sell wine or it was cool. Right. It, it was because that was how you should farm. Right. Um, I want to move along. I think that's a pretty good dose of uh, interesting history and a good setup. Um, I, I'm just curious why ultimately you settled in the central coast around Santa Maria. Um, was that because that's where the jobs were? Is that because you didn't know anywhere else? I mean, was it climatic? I mean, wh- why there? Why not further north, like where Rajpar is or, you know, wherever else? Yeah, you know, um, it was mostly be- out of circumstance. I went to Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, and this is where I found wine. And I don't know if you've been here, but this place is very, very magical. And I, I just wanted to figure out how I could make a living here. And so even part of me finding wine and getting into wine was because I wanted to live here. And in order to live here, I needed to make a life here. And so that, and then, and then I think one of your parts of your question was like, why focus in Santa Maria versus say up in Cambria where Raj is at? Right. Um, Well, you know, I think some of my first jobs were down in Santa Maria. Um, I worked for a gentleman named Kenneth Volk. And uh, so I was just introduced to that area and that's where it kind of all started. I'd say if you kind of watch the evolution of my brand, you'll notice a, a slight move north from Santa Maria focused to kind of San Luis Obispo County focused. Say the majority of my grapes now come from. Well, um, so that that's a good segue into, you know, my next line of questions, which is really, you know, now Mikey at Scar of the Sea and making, you know, wines and all that. So just, you know, people are listening and they may have seen your wines, but explain to me how you have structured and operate the winery. I mean, are we talking a physical winery building with your own equipment? You know, do you have to go outside? Um I know you just talked about farming your own vineyard. I know the majority of what you're doing, you contract. So just tell me quickly how, you know, the winery is is set up. Yeah, our winery is in San Luis Obispo. It's 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 a standalone winery. So Gene and I make our wines in our own winery with our own equipment. Um, It's an old auto body shop. Um, Uh So it used to be called Diesel Row, and it was a diesel shop. And it's a 4,000 square foot warehouse with a 10,000 square foot fenced in yard. And it's basically just a refrigerated warehouse building or like insulated Mm -hmm. and air conditioned and humidified. And then we don't have any drains inside. Um, Our drains are outside. Um, And so it's very lo-fi and very rustic. Um, But that's the wines that we make are well, are as well. You know, all of our equipment is used and purchased by intent over the last 10 years. So I have a a two ton basket press that presses all our red wines. I have a 50 hectoliter hectoliter Euro press that um, presses all our white wines. And is a Euro press like a bladder press? Yeah, bladder press. So I mean, that's a very important part of our winemaking is red wines in a basket press. And um, and that's mostly because of how it presses. It's, um, it's much, it, much less turbid when it presses out of a basket press, which means there's less solids, um, which allows us to make red wines with no racking, which is important in keeping the dissolved CO2 really high in the red wines, which allows us to use less sulfur 
And so all these little winemaking is like a thousand small decisions that all right. kind of chain into other decisions. And so, um, yeah, it took, let me just interrupt for a second. I hate to interrupt, but I always interrupt when you say you use that press and there's less solids, um, that's conscious. And is that something you learned or realized stylistically? That's where you needed to go. Yeah. Um, it's something I learned and noticed and then, um, and now use in, in our process. I don't think initially I was like, oh, wow, there's less solids. And so that will help me, um, rack the wine less. I think when I understood that dissolved CO2 is a natural preservator in wine, and it's what makes a red wine have a little slight effervescence if it's bottled young. Um, dissolved CO2 is a, is allows a wine to be stable without sulfur. Um, and it keeps a wine fresh. Ah. And so in order to bottle wine with high dissolved CO2, you need to not agitate the wine. So you need to not rack the wine. You also need to have a very cold cellar. And so you'll notice that the best natural winemakers or wines that are the freshest with the most minimal intervention have relatively high dissolved CO2s and are typically not racked. And so the reason that the solids matter for racking is because if you have too much solids in a red wine, you'll often find that the wine is slightly reduced. And if it's reduced, sometimes you'll need to rack it off its leaves. This allows me to not have to go through that process um, by only using a basket press. It's less solids, which means less chance of reduction on a red wine, which means I don't need to rack it. So it's kind of a broad question. I don't even know if it's the right one. I mean, how do you describe your style of winemaking? I mean, that's a description how you're making wine. I mean, that's how you choose to make red wines. Yeah, right? I mean, our, 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 I mean, does that go across the board, whether it's a Zin or a Pinot? I mean, you're doing, you know, that yeah, practice. On, on pressing for sure. When I press it is a different question. Um, my style of winemaking is a lot of attention with very minimal, um, like doing things to the wine. We, we, we add nothing so to really the wine. really hands off. Very hands off, but also very hands on in a way. Like we're not, because there's off. so many, there's so many steps that yeah, it's not your hands do, off, but you have to do things anyway. It's it's not a do nothing approach. I think that that is a mistake in some natural wine. Um, we don't do nothing; we add nothing, right. and uh, so we don't add yeast, we don't add acid, we don't add water, we don't add bacteria, we don't add any of that stuff. We do add a small amount of sulfur before right. we bottle, but. Um, that doesn't mean we don't do anything. You know, we are touching and smelling the ferments every day. We're moving them inside or outside or to different temperature zones. Temperature is kind of our biggest tool. tons of tweaks. Yeah, and so but that what about allows- like bigger things. Like what about bigger things? Like you know, whole cluster or what kind of oak you use? I mean, reacting to a certain vintage. I, I mean, are there? things in place or everything kind of varies like the touch thing you said you know you do what you have to when you have to i mean everything kind of varies but there's some things that are you know we don't use new oak we use older oak we prefer wines that um we like oak everything is aged in oak but i don't love the aromatics that um new oak gives um 
as far as like whole cluster goes, that's very much depends on the wine, depends on the vintage, depends on the site. Um, and then, you know, the main, like the biggest factor to us is natural acidity. And so when we pick the grapes and what the ripeness is all really depends on the vintage and in 2020, there was a heat wave. And so we had to be really reactive to the heat wave. We're watching weather. Well, vintage varied. and picking time, right? Yeah. That's the most important part of our wines is when they're picked without question. Um, is there a philosophy there? Like, are you always an early picker or are you late picker or does it depend on the thing? And it, isn't it fair to say Central Valley is Central Coast is generally a little cooler than a lot of places or am yeah, I cent- wrong? Central that? Coast is definitely a Which cooler. Which is what you like probably. Yeah. Well, cause I like acidity and, but at the same time I want there to be ripeness. So in a perfect world, you can get to a good ripeness level with a good amount of acidity. But um, really, the acidity is our limiting factor. So I don't really care if the wine has an alcohol of 11% or 14%. What, what I care about is if there's enough acid in, in the wine to hold its weight and to hold the amount of alcohol that it has and to keep the wine fresh and stable microbially without being filtered or messed with. So can you educate me on acidity? And I swear I don't know much about this. How do you control the acidity acidity is important to you you want it to be at a certain level how do you control it is it picking times i mean what you may have just answered the question and i didn't absorb it but to to assure the acidity that you want what are the things that you have to do well i mean so you you probably understand that um bricks is the measurement of sugar Sugar? right as the season goes on the bricks get higher correct Uh uh-huh Okay, well, acidity is the opposite of that. And so acidity starts really high. And then as the season goes on, it gets metabolized by the vine. And so it gets lower. And so you want to find that perfect intersection of when the acid is in a balance with the bricks. As the bricks is rising and the acid is falling, you want to pick it right when there's enough acidity to kind of hold that wine in that balanced set. Is there a device that, you know, that thing that measures bricks or something? Is there something for acidity? Yeah, it's called, uh, it's called titration, but it's, um, we, we will do basically we'll take a sample. So like when we make our, our most important decision, which is when to pick, we go to the vineyard and you have visual indicators. So is the vine going through senescence? Is it, is it leaves changing color? Are the seeds turning brown? What does the skin of the grapes look like? What does the ground look like? Also, you're looking at the weather. Is there a heat wave coming? Is it raining right. coming? And then, and then we take a sample and we'll mash up the grapes and we taste it. And then we also run a lab analysis on it. So there's a pH probe so we can test the pH of the wine, which tells us the strength of the acidity. And then there's something called titration, which basically we um, do a titration on the on the wine and it will tell us the ta which is stands for titratable acidity so titratable acidity is what we taste in the wine like how acidic does it taste that's a measurement of that ph is a measurement of how powerful the acid is so like it really shows me more whether the wine is microbially stable like how low the ph is kind of determines more 
chemistry based stuff. Right. Um, Mikey, we have to take a break, but before we take a break, a couple things. Yep. I want to just talk quickly about, um, one of the wines that we have in front of us, the Chardonnay. And when we come back, I want to morph out of the cellar, um, into the farm, you know, and talk about some of your partner's requirements, all of that type of stuff. But before we break, um, in front of me, I have a 2020 Scar of the Sea Chardonnay Vina, Vino de los Ranchos, which is from the Santa Maria Valley. Um, tell me a little about this wine. I have it in front of me. It's a beautiful mid, you know, golden color. Um, tell me more. Yeah, no, this wine comes from uh, a vineyard just right in Santa Maria Valley that was planted in 1973. It's called um, Vino uh, Rancho Vineto. Um, it's owned and farmed by uh, someone who's lived in the valley for nine generations, his family. Wow. Um, so it's James Onaveros owns this vineyard. And it's right across from the Bienacito Vineyard. Um, and super famous. Yeah, and this, like the Bienacito Vineyard, was planted in 73 on its own roots. Um, it's an old Chardonnay site. And it's a beautiful site. And, uh, you know, um, that's kind of where the wine is from. As far as the wine goes, I, I'm very inspired by uh, the wines kind of of the Jura um, and also of Chablis and Burgundy and um I, I would say that the wine is picked for acidity. So it goes through full ML. It's aged in old oak barrels for 18 months. So two, two years or two winters, which right. is very important. Um, and then that allows this wine, I kind of have like a yin yang approach on this wine. So it's very driven with acidity, but it's not sulfured and aged on oak for the majority of its life. And so it fills out and becomes broader and creamier in the palate, but then it's still, like I said, the acidity is the driving force. So they kind of play off each other. I think that it's very traditional way. in the sense of, you know, when you talk about, you know, Burgundy or I think you said the Jura, um, you know, it's certainly not a California Chardonnay with that unctuous body and, you know, all those other descriptors. Um, do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I do. I think that it, it the mouthfeel is, you know, beautiful. It's a mid, you know, mid mouthfeel plus or whatever. You know, it's not thin and it's it's not thick. The color is golden. Um, what typically this vintage, this wine, what kind of descriptors do you get on the nose and palate? Oh, this wine for me is very much like a yellow, kind of yellow citrus, um, like lemon. Uh, yeah. It has like a kind of a beeswax. Um, I think that the wine, like on the palate has a really salty, savory kind of almond, uh, feeling on it. And then it's, it also has this kind of broadness, like a olive oil cake or something that is kind of, yeah, um, that, that fullness and richness without being too crazy. Um, what's like, what's the perfect pairing for a wine like this? Oh, this wine. I mean, Truthfully, yeah, I mean, I know it's kind of cliche, but like we, we eat a lot of oysters around here. And this for me is just like a very much like, yeah, I mean, it's built for that, but I think it could go beyond that too. Um, So that's the 2020 Scar of the Sea Chardonnay Vino de los Ranchos, Santa Maria Valley. 
You know, we do a lot of just snacks and stuff too. So just like yeah. snacking on almonds and listen, I'm happy with cheeses. oysters, so you could yeah. stop there. Um, <laughs> cool. Mikey, we have to take a quick break. We're talking to uh, Mikey Juni. Mikey is the proprietor of Scar of the Sea Winery in the Central Coast of California. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about uh, what Mikey's doing out in the vineyards and the farm. And we'll get into a bunch of other things like cider and what Gene is doing. So you're listening to the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This episode is supported by HRN business member Food Karma Projects, dedicated to community building by creating unique food events that showcase the best local food, chefs, beer, and wine. Get fired up for the return of Rib King NYC for a full day of fun, featuring the Sauce King NYC Maker Showcase, Hard Cider Alley, pickles, grilled goodies including vegetables from the Snug Harbor Heritage Farm, plus many other food products, spirits, and drinks. It all takes place on Saturday, May 28th at Snug Harbor Cultural Center and Botanical Garden in Staten Island. To purchase tickets or for more information about this ultimate Memorial Day barbecue and picnic, visit ribkingnyc.com. Food Karma Projects supports HRN's creative, educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Mikey Juni. Mikey is the proprietor of Scar of the Sea. Uh, Mikey, we just tasted a wine. We talked about old Yiddish word, potchkering around in the cellar. Now let's talk about um, getting out in the field. Um, the majority of the wines that you make do a couple of things. They span a pretty big swath of California, um, and you contract most of these wines. True? True. Yes, that's right. All right. So 
I mean, we all know farming is everything in winemaking. You don't do it right out of the farm. It doesn't matter what you do. And you shouldn't do anything, you know, in the cellar. So we go back, you know, to the story you told at the beginning, to current. I mean, how do you select your farming partners? You know, how are you lucky enough to find guys? Um, you know, have you been with these guys a while? Um, yeah. You know, you how know, many different vineyards are you working with? Where are they? I mean, in a nutshell, kind of walk me through that. I mean, uh, relationships are kind of everything in, in this world. Um, and, and like all of them, they, they don't happen overnight and, and they need to be mutually beneficial. Um, we have a policy. Everything we work with has to be farmed organic at minimum. Um, minimal. Minimal, like the, our minimum phase is practicing organic. Um, and, and hopefully, and with the idea of moving that needle forward. So the vineyards that my wife and I farm are certified biodynamic through Demeter. And which is just a, a holistic regenerative approach to organic farming, right. but finding partners. And, and like you mentioned, Scar the Sea, Scar the Sea really is a negotiant project. It's a project where, I do not own any of these grapes um, and I purchase grapes from trusted farming partners. And so, like you mentioned, just finding those, you have to find people that you trust and that you can work with. And, um, and that's just something that we've worked on over the last. Is there a lot of input? Like, do you find a guy that's basically philosophically doing what you want and need or, you know, he's, organic and he really hasn't screwed up the property but you need to input him a little to do certain things i mean yeah it's a, that- it's a combination of that you know the the old vine stuff in cucamonga um that's been certified organic since the 90s and, and there's really not much farming going on down there it's really dry and it's not irrigated and they don't you know maybe they spray for powdery mildew one time a season or maybe nothing um right. and so all they really do is prune and pick. Um, so there's really no inputs there. Um, and they're much better at pruning those old vines than, than I could ever try to um, right. give advice on. Um, right. so the, and that, 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 that partner is important as long as they are willing to, um, honor when I want to pick the grapes. And so I will definitely make sure that I pay the right amount to make the grower really respect my wishes on when I see the grapes being ripe. Because that always hasn't lined up with maybe things, how things have been done over the last 10 years. Like I want to pick Zinfandel when it's 22 and a half bricks, 23 bricks, not when it's 28 bricks. But why would you get pushback if the guy has determined he's going to contract the vineyard to you and you're paying oh, well, him? Well, because not everyone, people, I mean, I don't get pushback because uh, it, I have good relationships. But, right. you know, you could have pushback because someone might not trust you and someone might not want. They might think that that wine won't be good. And then if that vineyard name is on a wine, that's not good. That's not good for them. And so there could be pushback on that kind of stuff. And then, you know, so wait, the noise I just made is I'm opening your Zinfandel, but please continue. Oh, cool. Your, uh, co-ferment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Um, and then, you know, you, I work with a vineyard in Santa Maria where I will specifically ask how things are being farmed and make requests on how, they can be done better or different types of watering techniques and different stuff like that. Right. And, right. and then, so, and then I, I'll work with a vineyard in, in Avila beach called the Bassey vineyard where 
uh, one of my best friends is the farmer and, and another one of my best friends owns the vineyard. And, and it's just a more collaborative process where, you know, we can have ideas together. We bring our pumice there to help them make compost. That's the best situation, right? Yeah. And so it's, I would not say that we have an input in their farming, but we have, um, shared influence in the farming if you will because we are the biggest client and we are friends and we have shared interest on farming the best we can are you continuing to look for more vineyards i mean do you have the desire and ability to take on you know another big plot maybe with a new varietal or another one are you tapped out i mean are you starting to think about owning i mean where yeah at this phase i mean you're aren't you celebrating your 10th year technically yes you know so where are you at with you know that part i mean we're 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 constantly searching to purchase our own land and farm our own fruit um and that is like the next milestone it's a very difficult one with the price of real estate and the price of things around here which is why we end up farming other people's lands but um that's our goal. And that's what we spend our time dreaming and searching for. Um, I'm not really, I don't have the capacity to grow much more than I currently am. Right. So not seeking to buy more fruit or find more vineyards to necessarily make wine from. We make combined between Gina and I just around 5,000 cases of wine and, and we are able to touch every aspect of it. You know, we have one employee and, um, and the three of us do everything. And so we like that. I don't want to grow so big that I can't top my own wines and I can't right. so do all So it seems like things. it would be a hybrid that, you know, down the road, you may own some property and you may add that or put it in place of something. But to do what you want to do, you're going to have to continue working with these partners. True? A hundred percent. I think yeah. even if yeah. I didn't have to, I would want to. I like um, diversifying my business as far as purchasing some fruit and growing some fruit. I'm able to work with other friends and be inspired and learn. And then I'm also able to be practicing what I preach and, and make in farming our own grapes. So I, right. I think that the combo is the best for us. You brought this up earlier and I always try to educate myself on this. But when you talk about organic farming and then you even take it a step further to biodynamic farm, biodynamic farming, does that address the need for regenerative farming? Is that regenerative farming or you even have to go over and above, you know, to understand the soil, to make it, you know, a living viable thing, you know, for the indefinite future? Um, I think biodynamic farming is a, a type of regenerative farming. Um, or it can be if it's done really well. Um, but yeah, organic farming, I would say is like the base. And then within organic farming, there's all these like more detailed sex, if you will. And so there's biodynamics or there's regenerative, they kind of overlap. Regenerative really focuses on the idea that, um, there's no till and also there's use of animals, um, and biodynamics, it, you know, some biodynamic producers till the soil. Um, so that right. might not be the most regenerative practice. But it's. I also think that everything is kind of case by case. And so it's, it's hard. Someone says to me they need to till this soil and they're farming biodynamic. Like, I, I trust them. Um, right. I don't think you have a reason not to. 
Yeah, you and can't so, go nuts. You know, there's this whole movement that if you add a touch of sulfur, the world is over. You know, you do it for a reason. Right. 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 I mean, what about, is biodiversity just another synonymous thing? Like guys like Nate Reddy and even Raj to some extent, you know, they have animals roaming around, chicken, they're driving to the ocean to get water, you know, to make these additives. Um, is that... They're trying to regenerate, but they're also trying to be biodiverse. I mean, is biodiversity even, you know, another thing? Well, biodiversity, I mean, I, I guess I'm a little confused on your question, but... Um, so am I. <laughs> uh, I mean, what those, what Nate Reddy and Raj are doing is very serious farming, and, and they're pushing the boundaries of regenerative farming. Um and so what they're, what they're doing when they go to the ocean to get salt water, different types of things like that, they're basically making different types of fermentations to spray on their vineyard uh, to fight mildew or different disease pressure or potentially give energy to the vines in different ways. And so um, maybe that's not like standard biodynamic farming, but it's definitely a, a type of regenerative um, right. and very thoughtful farming which I think is maybe the key um, is just be doing very thoughtful farming and creative farming in order to best steward the land. I'd say the goal behind all this farming is to be good land stewards um, right. and to try to uh, pass on land that was better than when we got it and not be an extractive generation, but be a, a, a just a more responsible generation. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. There are so many good ways to do it. Um, and I know you think certification is a good thing. You I know, do. I a, mean, we. It's a good thing to be organically or Demeter or whatever certified. Th there's just um, too much um, greenwashing these days. And, and I'm unfortunately not as trustful of everyone. And so for us, we believe in certification because it shows it, it shows we are doing what we say we're doing. Um, do I think that it needs to be that case for everyone? No, but I do think that big companies and a lot of people use an excuse of expense or different things to why they're not certified. But in reality, it's not that much money and they're most likely cutting a corner somewhere that they don't want to show, which is why they're not being certified. So I agree to check those bigger guys. But then there's that guy who really does everything even beyond and either doesn't want to certify or can't afford it. Um, I guess you don't have to worry about him because right. you know, what, I mean, I would what say he the, does reflects through you know how he does. I would say the can't, can't afford it, I don't totally buy into. Tough, I, right? I, I, yeah, no. I understand the maybe doesn't want to. Um, and if that person is small enough and I trust them, then that's fine. But I also just think, that the certification takes the guessing out of it. Um, and you can always be better than your certification. You could be certified biodynamic and be farming extremely regenerative and in, in the best, and you're still certified. Like when we get certified, that's our minimum, right? We're minimum biodynamic. Right. That means that means we can farm. Anybody good doesn't stop there. Exactly. And right. so that's my point um, with with that. And that's the same reason that you know, we got our winery certified so we can actually put moving forward, put biodynamic stamps on the, on the wines that are actually farmed biodynamic and kind of just show transparency to our consumers in a way of educating the consumers so that they can 
put their money behind pe- people and places that are um, trying to steward the land properly. Right. All right. I have a Sophie's Choice question for you. Do you think you make better wine or better cider? <laughs> um, that's a hard Good question. Good question, right? Yeah. You didn't jump um, on an answer. No, it's a hard one. Uh, I don't like the question, I'd say, is why I don't. I All right, I'm ending the interview right now, and I'm not oh. going to air it. No, really. <laughs> I, I get that. I mean, it's a silly question, but it was my segue into cider. And the reason I asked that is the next few minutes we discussed this, making cider yeah. is like making wine, mm-hmm. you know, and I think you'll describe some similarities. But, I, I mean, why is it so hard to answer? Oh, because I like them both a lot, and they're very okay. Different. That let's and, end and, it at that. So they're equally as important, and yeah. you know, cider doesn't always get the props you know that it deserves in that sense. Um, so, tell me a little about your ciders, because, like I said, and you'll expand on it. You're very serious about how you make your cider. It's like making wine with apples, not grapes. You said earlier. Yeah. Um, so tell me what you're doing there. Um, our cider comes from an orchard planted in Aptos um, in the 1940s and 50s. It's an old American varietal called Newtown Pippin. Uh, right. The orchard is farmed with no inputs, so it's just pruned and picked. Um, and, and, you know, cider, uh, cider has terroir in its own way and has its own distinctive things, which is why I think it's so exciting. Um, and so we just make a normal cider and our normal cider, it's all made the same way as wine, right? It's pressed as apples and turns right. into apple juice. And then we ferment the apple juice in white wine barrels. And then um, alternatively to a lot of ciders, I actually aged the cider in barrel for a full year. Wow. And then the next year when I press the next vintage of apples and it starts fermenting, that's when I actually blend in 10% of that fresh juice into the year old cider and then I bottle it. And so that's how you What does the, the 10% the fresh juice do? It's my dosage for bubbles. It is okay, so it's dosage. All right. Um, it's and, what adds the natural yeast in the in the apple sugar, then that's where right. the yeast eat the sugar in the bottle and it gets sparkly. What's curious to me is you work with so many vineyards and you work with I counted easily a dozen varietals and you're just as excited about cider and you work in cider with a singular apple, you know, the Newtown Pippin. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess you're very happy with that. Do you have any curiosities, you know, with other? Of course I do. But I think more important than other varietals for me is place and farming. And I just, so you nailed that. I kind of nailed that from just the beginning. And I got really lucky to have this old orchard to a good variety that's farmed well. And I'm not trying to grow my cider business. And so, you know, I I make what I consider my Newtown Pippin, like just normal cider. And then, and then I do a co-ferment that I'll ferment cider with grapes or white grape. And, and then I also do like a a red co-ferment where I do cider with the pumice of gamay or mandoose and then wow, so i have great. these kind of three different um flavors of cider if you will so it sounds like a piquette cider or something it is like a piquette cider my problem with piquette is that uh there's not enough water there's not enough acid in the water so most piquettes get acidulated um I, right. so i want i don't want to do that and so 
apple juice has good acidity. And so by re-fermenting um, cider with pumice, you get these cool aromatics and things from the grapes, but then you have the nice structure from that from the cider. So it makes so like the very- are, I think I know the answer. I just want to double check. The ciders are under the scar of the C label. Yeah. So if you go on our website, there's like yeah. um, a handful of ciders that are for sale. There's- right. Because I, I know you were involved in other projects and all that. I just want to make sure nobody's confused about it. Yeah, right. no, I have. Couple- I, yeah. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Oh, no, it's you- okay. Um, that's like the fourth time I interrupted you. I get skewered <laughs> for that. And I don't mean to stop you in your thought. Um, so what I wanted to, um, kind of, you know, we got to, we're running out of time. I want to wind down, but I don't want to miss a couple things. Um, you know, Gina, your soulmate in life and wine, she now makes her own wines under a lady of the sunshine. So a few things, um, Tell me about her involvement in Scar of the Sea. Tell me about your involvement in Lady of the Sunshine. Um, and you mentioned you farm your own vineyard, and I think I'm right that it's the Chenet Vineyard, which I think is Lady of the Sunshine. F- fill, fill in all the gaps for me on all that. Of course. So my wife, Gina, um, she has her own winery, her own label called Lady of the Sunshine. We kind of have like a his and hers, if you will. And, okay. and we make them both in our winery. Um, we share, you know, the same philosophies on wines and vineyards. But like I mentioned in this interview, wine's made in like a thousand different decisions. And so we don't have to dominate each other's decisions. Um, when we have two separate brands like this, it allows us to kind of each have a voice and help each other, but not make each other's decisions. Um, we were trained differently, um, and we make diff- we our our style of making decisions and the quickness is very different. And so it, it allows us wow. to be happily married. Okay, um, <laughs> yin and yang. Exactly, and you know Gina's involvement in Scar of the Sea. I would say Gina's more involved in Scar of the Sea than I am in Lady of the Sunshine. Okay. Um, and that's probably because Scar of the Sea is bigger. Um, right. And so Gina is taste everything with me, helps me make decisions, and kind of is the other winemaker, if you will. Um, it's under maybe my like uh, my style and my inspiration, and she helps me. Um, and then Lady of the Sunshine is very much Gina and Gina's voice, and, and the wines are more precise and kind of um, – they to me, they just remind me of her more. Um, and she, we help her when she asks us to help her. So she, she's very much likes to do all of it and, um, likes it her way. And so when she wants help, then we help her. Um, but it's, it's where scar the sea, she's helping without me asking because she knows I I need help. Right. And now what um, about, uh, the vineyard? Yeah, the she, vineyard. She, is you in, own a property, right? We we don't own it. Um, we farm. Oh, I thought it. you and did. So similar to like what I was alluding to, the land prices are so high that right. in order for us to be in control of vineyard doesn't mean owning a vineyard. So this is a six and a half acre vineyard that's owned by an amazing couple in Edna Valley, and they um, and then we farm it for them, and then we are responsible for all the grapes. And so Gina, and when I say we. That one is more like a Gina with help of me and Charlie and Charlie's our seller master. Right. Um, and so that's, 
uh, about five acres or five and a half acres of Pinot Noir and one acre of Chardonnay. And it's on in the Southwest corner of the Edna Valley. And um, she's been farming it since 2018. Um, and it got certified by Demeter in 2020. Um, and then the grapes go mostly to Gina. So Gina is what I would call a vigneron. Um, so someone who ma- grows the grapes with her right. hands that she makes. Um, and then I also take some of the grapes and purchase some of the grapes from the, like the farm company that we've set up for that. Right. Um, and, and I blend that with another vineyard and make what I call like the slow coast Pinot Noir. Um, but yeah, so it mostly goes to Gina and then it also comes a little bit to Scar of the Sea. But then we both have a lot of energy time spent there. You know, Gina's the captain and then me and Charlie kind of help do everything. Right. Um, but, right. you know. Very cool si- project. Six and a half acres takes a lot of time when it's farmed that way. So it's, you know. And it's mostly Pinot, you said? It's mostly Pinot with a little bit of Chard. Yeah. Um. All right, Mikey, we have to wrap up soon. We have to do two things. I subject everyone to um, my wine list, and we're going to taste the last wine. Also to uh, Lady of the Sunshine at the end of the show. You know, I'll get info for everybody where they could get more info. All right, so here's our wine list, five questions. We ask every guest on every show the same five questions because we don't have a lot of lot of time but even anyway don't dwell on the answers move through them quickly whatever comes to your mind so the first question is what are you drinking now what's in the fridge what what are you curious about what are you and gina tasting are you doing any experimentation you know for making wine the seasonal changes what are you drinking now oh drinking now uh last night i drank a chocolina on the porch okay um we are drinking fresh fun wines that kind of go with the the season so any, right now it's like, like anything most, come to mind um i i mean i've been drink we've been drinking a lot of tea so um okay. and also on the red front we've been drinking a lot of sicilian wines oh uh, and white we actually had a really good caraconte a few nights ago and then um we had a really good nero Diavola, Syrah blend a few days ago. And so mm. we really like Sicily. Sicily is really important to us and kind of where our future's leaning towards inspirational wise because it actually is way more similar climatically to where we live than most of the French right. places that these varietals yeah. are coming from. So, um, and we just love Nero's and Frappato's and um, they the make wines. incredible wines. A couple of New York restaurant friends are there right now, and they're just oh, Instagramming like crazy. Um, second question, silliest question on the list, but always curious. Your favorite wine and food pairing. Not what we think is a good one, but what you like. Obviously, you don't eat it every week, every month. But what's that perfect wine pairing? Earlier, we talked about the uh, Chardonnay and oysters. You're not allowed to use that answer or champagne and oysters, <laughs> but what what else kind of resonates? Oh, we eat a lot of tacos. Okay, um, and so, what goes really well with tacos then? I mean, honestly, we're kind of always. I know it's beer. Not, it's not, beer obviously goes really well with tacos, but but honestly, 
we're always just eating, drinking what we call breakfast wines. And it's like Chablis or the Loire. Um, and typically with like simple Mexican food, like tacos or different things like that. All right. I love that. Uh, I've stumbled across breakfast wines a bunch of times <laughs> recently. Um, and let's you and I try to describe it. It's a lower alcohol, you know, drinkable, right? Yeah. Breakfast wine is exactly what it sounds like. It's like when you go fishing in the morning and when you are ready to drink and it's only eight o'clock and you want something that's fresh. I hope you're and... doing your breakfast wine after you surf, not before. <laughs> a no, a, bre- a breakfast wine is like something that just has good acidity and kind of lower alcohol and is right. lightweight. Acidity and... is important. All right. Yeah. Third question. Um, I know you work hard, but I know you get around. You know, I see you sitting in Raj's house and other places. Give me your favorite wine restaurant and our bar. And probably the easiest thing is, you know, up and down the coasts that you work. You know, what are places? And and it's a specific question. Who's got a great list? Interesting. Who's knowledgeable about it? Who has a good vibe? You know, you just walk in and, you know, good people, good vibe, good wine. Who Who checks those boxes? Um, I think, and whatever that, you that, say, you're not in- excluding anyone. You know, it's like I don't want you to bump into somebody and go, "Why didn't you mention me?" Um, it's just a few things that come to mind. Of course, um, the easiest one for me is a local one, and so it's a place called Satellite in Santa Barbara. Okay, um, and they have a really good selection of California natural wines and European wines, and good snacks, and it's. I love that place. Um, How far is that from where you live? It's far. I mean, it's, it an, is, hour yeah. and a, it's an hour and a half. That's yeah, what I thought. Yeah, not, not, not close by any means. Anything like by you? Like, aren't there all these tasting rooms and restaurants and like San Luis Obispo and all that stuff? Is there anything in between that? I mean, yeah, there's a, some really good spots in Paso and in Slow, but nothing that's like speaking to me like... All right, like, so let's satellite. leave it at Satellite because... We don't have a ton of time. Fourth question. Favorite all-time wine. When I initially asked my guests that, I wanted to know the most expensive rare wine they ever drank. I don't care about that anymore. What's the wine that is the most important to you, that changed the way you think about it, that's influential, you know, that's hard to forget? Is there any wine or two that comes to mind that way? Um, yeah. I mean, there's probably two producers. Um I would say Alice and Olivier D'Amour from Chablis and probably um, Le Bay from the Jura. Both uh-huh. have like uh, changed and affected how I make white wines. And they're also I, insanely delicious wines. Unfortunately, kind of hard to find right now. I know. But. that's That's been the story with, you know, anyone I ask that question to usually resorts to, you know, an interesting winemaker like that, that really is fulfilling in many ways but it's the same ending some of them aren't even around and the ones that are it's just hard to get their wines but that that's the way to answer that's the answer all right last question you should be able to do this um i asked my guests recommend to me the best wine around 15 20 22 bucks retail um i want you to recommend a red recommend a white uh, you could do category, you could do maker, but I always say my kids are in like their mid late twenties. They can't afford to spend forty, fifty bucks. They 
not nice to bring supermarket wine to a dinner as a gift. So what are the wines that wow, you know, in that high teen, low 20 mark? Well, it's kind of hard. Um, I would say I would go Google Eric Eisenhoff's 20 under 20 list. Okay. Um, um, and then I'm also thinking of, I don't know, I think they're in the t- low 20s, but it's an Austrian produ- producer named Meinklein. They are. Yeah. And they're and delicious. Good, uh... And they're biodynamic and they're accessible. Yep. They're kind yep. of, if they are that price, those are definitely the wines I would recommend. They definitely have some wines that fall into that category. And I was just at, um, I forgot what it's called, Wild World, which is a natural wine festival, even smaller than raw wine. And they were there. Is it in, the in Texas were... or where is that? Well, it started in Texas and they brought it to New York years ago. Okay, cool. Same people. Uh, yep. Byron Bates from Goat Boy and some other guys from Texas. Cool. All right. Those are terrific recommendations. You did a great job. Um, Sam, I realized uh, the restaurant, the my favorite wine shop right now is in San Francisco and it's called Palm City Wines. P-A-L-M, Palm City Wines? Yeah, Palm City Wines, yeah. Can I tell you I never heard of it? So that's why we do this because we want discovery. People kind We of hadn't been either. Gene and I had the best time we've had in years just drinking mm. there and hanging out. Good reco. Um, uh, we post all the answers on our social media. So, I mean, we don't do cool. this in vain. We, we turn people on to, you know, your likes and expertise. So thank you for that. All right. Our final thing, and then we got to wrap it up, um, is our weekly wine sip. Every week we taste a different wine on air for our weekly wine sip. Um, this week we have a very cool, interesting wine, our second wine that Mikey provided. It's the 2021 Scar of the Sea Bassy Vineyard Pinot Gris and Pinot Noir co-ferment. I've already um, poured some and tasted it, and I love it. So, Mike, Mikey, tell me a little more about this wine. Uh, this wine is from the Bassy Vineyard, so it's in Avila Beach. It's about a mile from the ocean. It's on sandstone. And... The Pinot Gris and the Pinot Noir are planted right next to each other. Mm. Um, and they're on like this really white, chunky soil. It's definitely a very good site. And it's surprising that Pinot Gris was planted on it. Um, and yeah, the inspiration behind this wine is really I wanted to make a like um, a wine that I see as very much influenced by the coast. So this is like a wine of the Pacific Um and it, I want, I want, didn't necessarily want it to taste like Pinot Gris or Pinot Noir, but more of like this place and this vibe. And it's a daytime sipper, you know, it's, uh, it's crunchy, it's salty, it's slightly tannic. Um, it's All of mostly, that. it's mostly Pinot Gris. So it's two thirds Pinot Gris and one third Pinot Noir. So it's all whole cluster Pinot Gris. And then I de-stem a little bit of the Pinot Noir on top. Right. And then it's made just really simply, you know, there's really nothing done to it. It's bottled early and that allows it to kind of have that crunch and freshness, but then it's not carbonic. So it, it does have like that tannin and salt and savoriness. Um, it's not just like a glue glue wine. It's right. a more serious wine. You know, you have the nice weather all the time. We're moving into the nice weather. This is a damn good wine. To start walking out, you know, to the deck, the terrace, the beach, or whatever. Um, exactly. Let's just do a little evaluation. So the color is kind of a, you know, like a dark 
pink, light red. I don't know if pink's the right word, but it's a translucent, you know, lighter red, right? Yeah, you can see through it. Yeah. Um, and it's not purple. It's not bright red. It's not orange. Um, tell me what you get on the nose with this wine. What does the Pinot Gris and the Pinot Noir together, what does that sum up to? I mean, for me, it's like, it's really floral, like a yes. dried, dried flowers. Yes. And then I would say my next move in there, it's like very much like blood orange or kind of dark citrus. Um, God, you nailed it. I suck at it, but I, I have this up to my nose and everything you're saying, you know, I'm not sitting here going, well, where did that come from? It's all of it. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So that, that, that's the nose. Anything else? I mean- there's more there, but that those are the yeah, that's no, the that, primary. It's pretty prominent. The mouthfeel is sort of a medium mouthfeel. I think it's this type of wine. It's not a thin wine. It's certainly not, you know, big wine. It's got a nice, you know, refreshing mouthfeel. Does the palate reflect the uh nose or are there other things on it too? There's other things on it. I think the palate is really mouthwatering and then it's also has like some really salty to me it's like i was just gonna say i think the salinity makes it a little mouthwatering but also the acid right yeah it's the combo right and then there's like these short dry tannins it tastes almost like italian in a way um yeah i mean the tannins are present not overbearing but you know they mm -hmm. reflect what you're tasting and it, it dries it dries you out so it's like it leaves it leaves your mouth dry and like salty still um so to that sensation what what's good pairings with that with this? oh this for me is like a charcuterie wine all day it's like a like cured meats and almonds and strong like, cheeses what yeah it all strong up like hard cheeses sal- right. salty hard cheeses like good salty cured meats and and olives i could do that all day um yeah skip dinner just exactly just lay lay out and lay through a whole tray of charcuterie. All right, Mikey. Um, so that's the 2021 Scar of the Sea Bassy Vineyard Pinot Green Pinot Noir co-ferment from San Luis Obispo County. Um, and that's a delicious wine. We have to wrap up the show, Mike. Let me do a quick wrap up and then i want to get some info from you so if you have a question suggestion wine happening or event hit me up at sam at the grape nation.com that's sam at the grape nation.com subscribe to the grape nation podcast on apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify wherever you get your pods i always say if you subscribe you wake up with mikey next to you there's the podcast ready to listen uh, follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at S. Ben Ruby. On Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. But you can use the hashtag on both um, to get to us. As I mentioned, we'll post Mikey's wine list, those five questions and all those recos in there. And I will list on our weekly wine sip the wine we tasted plus the shard that we tasted earlier. Um, on our social media sites and mikey thank you for those wines it was a pleasure to drink them and drink them with you um so where do people get more info on the wines how can we follow the wines how can we follow you give me some download on some info where we could stay connected with you yeah our wines you can find our wines hopefully in your favorite and best wine shops um 
Or if you can't find your wines locally, then um, you can always purchase our wines on our website and we ship via FedEx or GLS. That's scarthesea.com. Yep, that's scarthesewines.com. Or my wife's my wife's label, um, Lady of the Sunshine Wines.com. Right. And if you Google either one, you know, that'll but be yeah, the first Google thing either of those or Instagram um, is an easy way of finding us as well. So I'm going to say two things to that. Hopefully at this point, you know, our listeners know that if they go to kind of a cool wine shop that the owner or the people there are curating good wines. So maybe they'll have your wines. If not, they could talk to the people and say, hey, do you get this? Have you heard of it? Can you get it? So that's Scar of the Sea and Lady of the Sunshine. You should talk to them. Um, the websites are pretty... Uh, pretty deep you know a lot of info i mean if you go to scar of the sea it's just tons of wines you'll see how much different stuff mikey's making not necessarily available but you know you'll see what's going on there so the website or um your wine maker and look for it on restaurant lists um all right mikey i can't thank you much can't thank you enough for spending all this time talking about, you know, what is truly a passion of yours and some terrific wines. Um, so thank you to our guest, Mikey Juni. Um, thank you to our engineer, Kevin, as always, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. 